Hi, this is Mike Cohen, and you're listening to the NeuroNoodle Network Podcast. Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Jansen, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel, be a Patreon supporter of our show, and get early content, behind-the-scenes action, as well as partake in our members-only NeuroNoodle Network meeting. If you're not a subscriber, visit NeuroNoodle.com now and sign up. My name is Pete, and today we have on the show Mike Cohen, Director and Chief of Neurotechnology at CenterForBrain.com. Say that three times fast. And he's also the author of Neurofeedback 101, Rewiring the Brain for ADHD, Anxiety, Depression, and Beyond. We had Mike back on in uh, December of last year. Mike, thanks for coming back on the show today. Great to be here. Love that you guys are having conversations with a lot of people about the brain. Sorry, I'm a little bit off my game. I didn't get a good night's uh, sleep last night, Mike. I was I was hoping... Uh, <laughs> that was a lead so, into sleep. But really, lots and lots and lots of people hear about sleep. And they're all told these basic things you're supposed to do for your uh, you know, sleep hygiene and basic stuff. But I'm finding there is a huge missing gap of information about something that is critical for sleep that just it doesn't just affect sleep. I mean... If sleep is off, you know, people are complaining of being anxious, racing minds when they're trying to go to sleep, waking up in the middle of the night with their brain going, and they call that anxiety. They wake up with anxiety. But these are sleep issues. You should not wake up at three in the morning with your brain racing. You should not wake up at six in the morning and feel, or eight in the morning or 10 in the morning and say, I'm exhausted or I don't feel rested. The goal of sleep, if you are sleeping well, is you wake up and you're somewhat refreshed. So how many people are saying, I wake up consistently, completely refreshed? You have lots of clients. Anybody comment on that? I don't even know if anybody on this panel can raise their hand. Here's my beef with the sleep hygiene, and I'm just picking an aspect. We had you on today, Mike because we want to talk about all things, you know, sleep related, the comment, you know, if your sleep is off, then you could fill in anything you want. You know what I mean? It's going to affect all performance and behaviors for somebody that has a, a sleep, you know, issue me, all this talk about sleep hygiene. And I'm like, I, I, I would love to be able to, to do all these things and, and make my room dark and, you know, practice good hygiene and turn my Netflix off at seven or whatever and, and get ready. That's not the whole puzzle, right? There's other things besides me doing my checklist of things, you know, making sure that my sleep uh, is, is ready to happen. And so with that in mind, we, we, we wanted to, you know, get into some EMFs and good old things, but this idea of a sleep disorder, it, it, it's a pandemic, a different pandemic that we have going on. And it's so, a different it's a different pandemic to the point that I now ask my 17 to 30 year olds who come in. I have a large number of 17 to 30 year olds who, when you ask them about sleep, do you wake up and feel rested or 
do you feel relatively good energy through the day? All right. If you see somebody who is 17 to 35, they are young enough, they should not be reporting, I'm having difficulty waking, or I get tired during the day, correct? That would not be normal for those, that population. They're telling me when I ask them, 50 to 70% of people they know their age are having problems with sleep. They are not reporting good sleep or they're reporting being tired early in the day or multiple times during the day. So it's not just the folks that are coming to see you, which would be a clinical population, nope. but you're saying you're asking them about folks they know too. Everybody they know. We are in an epidemic. So one of the underlying pieces, and I'm going to attribute some of this information to my research and, and a reminder from uh, a Dr. Robert Turner, who's a neurologist, who is observing that when he gets his really difficult neurological clients. So these are clients with migraines and seizures, but this could be anybody really has the same underlying issue with sleep. He gets them to try to turn off their EMF, meaning their Wi-Fi. So try to tremendously reduce Wi-Fi at night exposure and to turn down and reduce the blue light exposure because the biology of sleep is now very clear. If you go start researching the science of sleep, we have some very basic rules. You get too much light at night that has a blue element in it. It tells a part of your brain. Can anybody remember the part of the brain that it tells? I can't say it. There's a part of the brain that it alerts the part of the brain when you're getting too much blue light. Hey, you're supposed to be waking up now. So we are being exposed to LCD lights, LED lights, any TV screen, any cell phone screen, everything in most of our houses are these devices that use LED, LCD, incandescent bulbs, by the way, is better. Um, and old so school. old school light bulbs. Uh, yeah, the old light bulbs. Those are better. We are being constantly telling our brains there, here's a little bit of blue light, and that is telling your brain, even right before you go to sleep, hey, this is, you're supposed to be waking up, here's blue light. It's not conscious. We are completely unaware of it. The number of people that I hear tell me that they're holding their phones and going to sleep by their phones and having things or going to sleep with TV on, these are telling your brain multiple mixed messages, which is, hey, try to calm down. At the same time, another part of your brain that is receiving this light, which is totally unconscious to you, is messing up your sleep cycle. How many people are being exposed to blue light every single night, almost up until they go to bed? I think it's our current world. Yeah. Isn't it everybody? I mean, you guys know, you know, know a lot about sleep, but somehow when I started listening to these basic lessons of sleep biology, which is you're not supposed to have blue light at night because it tells your brain the wrong thing. None of us notice it when you do it one time. So we think, oh, this isn't causing me any problem at all. I can go right to sleep with my phone. But are you sleeping good quality? We're talking about interfering with the quality of your sleep. And if the quality of your sleep is not good, even though you think I slept fine, are you tired in the morning? Are you tired during the day? Because if you're tired in the morning, 
you're tired during the day, you got to sleep wrong, period. And most doctors, I don't think, are calling that sleep problems. Yeah, I'll, I'll speak my perspective, but then we've got some other folks, I'm sure, that have their, their ideas too. Again, back to this kind of sleep hygiene approach, which is fine. You know, eat, eat, eat well, sleep, exercise, you know, let's start there. But the idea that it's it's only a matter of of doing these certain things, which then seems to pull in, you know, the busy Western Western world, you know, you're working 60 hours and doing all this stuff and you don't give yourself enough time to sleep because it's go, go, go. I understand that approach. And again, it, at least it's an effort to address an issue. I just think and I hope that's where we're going, Mike. I'm pretty sure we are, that that there's so much more to it than just, hey, I'm really busy and, and I I make myself stay up to either watch something or do something or you know, work harder. I I I'm I'm of the thinking that it's a hell of a lot more than that. It, it's more than just a Western mindset of we work a lot. It, it, yeah, and people go, Well, I'm busy, I have things on my mind, all these other things, but it is, I mean, the biology. We, if we are screwing with our biology, if we're interfering with the brain's ability to actually regulate sleep and you interfere with sleep quality, how much does interfering with sleep quality affected by two things we're going to talk about? One is light and the other is Wi-Fi. And I'm going to talk about Wi-Fi in a big way because it is also everywhere and everybody assumes Wi-Fi is good because... If it wasn't good, they really wouldn't let us do it, right? <laughs> sure. I yeah, mean, the telephone right. companies and the cell phone companies, they wouldn't let us do this if it wasn't good for us, right? Absolutely, Mike. Sorry, uh, Would, but, do you want to jump into Wi-Fi? I'm a techie by nature, so I had Wi-Fi everything because everybody has Wi-Fi everything and Bluetooth and whatever it is, you know, and cellular, you know, your cell phones and everything. That's the way to go. Uh, so I had it everywhere, but then I started hearing research about the impact on sleep. And more importantly, really, that's not what I heard. The first I heard was that when you are exposed to a certain level of Wi-Fi, uh, microwatts per square meter is sometimes the term that's being called of low-level non-ionizing radiation, there are biological effects. And one of the biological effects are it increases the amount of calcium that flows significantly that flows across your cell membranes while you're being exposed. So it's like, I'm not perfect neurophysiology. Jay can probably talk better about this. If you increase the amount of calcium constantly flowing across your cell membrane and you have sleep issues or you have anxiety issues, is that a good thing? Jay, I don't know if you have an opinion about that, but that's, that's actually where this started for me. In fact, glia regulate uh, neural activity largely with uh, calcium and uh, also metabolically. But what you've basically said is uh, generally correct about the color of light. There are programs on your computer that can change the color of the screen slightly to be more blue in the morning and more reddish orangey at night. It's important. And by the way, it's the pineal gland that ends up receiving the light intensity that mm. changes your level of melatonin, which is why you're supposed to get intense light in the morning to turn down your melatonin. So it resurges in the evening uh, to set your biological rhythm. Uh, Rusty Turner, the epileptologist neurologist, um, and I both 
uh, have observed that it's harder to find uh, people that have normal vigilance regulation now. Historically, we, you know, we're both well experienced over the years and we're not seeing people hang on to the awake state very well at this point. And so what, do, what does that mean, Jay? Not, not uh, hang on to the awake state. Is that you're talking about during the day? During the day, during routine daytime EEG recordings. Mm. You know, we're supposed to measure a 20 minute to 30 minute total recording time EEG to meet medical standards. And during that, we usually do a 10 minute eyes closed, which can be used then to measure vigilance. There's a European vigilance model uh, that, that's been around since the 1960s. So vigilance and, might mean how awake you are. And it's, it's not just awake. It's also the ability to interact uh, uh, productively with the outside world. You have to be um, not just awake, but also you know, functionally interactive. You, you can be awake in stage one sleep, which is drowsiness. A lot of people drive down the road and they find themselves five or six exits past the last time they remember being on the road. And they were in stage one sleep while they were driving, which is autopilot, highway hypnosis. You're not really fully interactive. You have to alert and orient and then respond. So your reaction time is really quite slow. You didn't drive into somebody else's lane, but you know, you're, if something happens, your your react reaction time is not adequate. So Jay, um, is it is so is it fair? I'm just going to circle back for a second that both light, blue light at night, and Wi-Fi both can interfere with mechanisms that play a role in how alert and how well we sleep and how alert and awake we are during the day. I'll, I'll verify the light impact. I have not seen detailed research on Wi-Fi. I, I don't refute the fact that it could happen. Um, and, you know, believing that uh, corporations are totally benign on what they're foisting on us is, is a pipe dream. Uh, but there's other things that influence your ability to sleep well. Uh, there's endogenous features, not just something out there, but something inherent to the individual that has sleep difficulties. As an example, the Australian Institute for Sports did uh, training for their elite athletes, world-class elite athletes, not, you know, I played high school football or something, but, you know, people that are Olympic level and international competitions, those people are actually pretty tightly wrapped. A, a lot of them are easily excited and more difficult to wind them down. And their brains actually have an excess of beta, usually at the vertex, frontal, central, midline. And for those individuals, they have insomnia. Uh, that they have difficulty falling asleep. They have difficulty staying asleep. And uh, we, we can train them with the sensory motor rhythm, uh, which can end up counterbalancing their beta spindling. And Meaning a type of neurofeedback that you can exactly. stick the sensor in the middle of their head and train. Yeah, and that training can end up counterbalancing the beta spindles that they have. Well, first of all, in the 1980s and 90s, there were people uh, claiming we can do neurofeedback for insomnia based on their clinical experience. But, you know, if, if your licensing board would have called you on the carpet and you had to have shown them the efficacy literature to support what you're training or doing, you would have been on thin ice. Well, actually, you've been walking on water. You'd have to be a deity because there was no 
efficacy literature at that point, purely experimental back then. And, and Barry Sturman, you know, in the 1970s reported in his cats that when you trained SMR, sleep spindles got more dense. And people kind of use that as some evidence. Well, a cat study isn't going to really work for your efficacy support in front of a licensing board. People were doing the training based on their experience, but without clinical literature support. In 2005, Salzburg, Austria's uh, Consciousness and Sleep Lab did the first real efficacy study with kind of college level insomniacs, not world-class, really severe insomniacs, but people that had trouble sleeping at the university. They found that 10 sessions of SMR training was effective. That was replicated in Graz, Austria, Gert Furcheller's lab. At that point, people thought, well, you know, now we've got two academic centers, both saying this sensory motor rhythm training can end up helping with sleep onset and wakefulness insomnia. So in Salzburg, they brought in some really bad insomniacs, world-class insomniacs, people that had decade plus of, of difficulty. And they did the same 10 sessions of SMR. They found it wasn't adequate. I hypothesized that it was a dose issue, just not enough sessions because severe clinical take a little longer to kind of unwrap than just normal street level. And uh, we replicated the experimental group, not the full study, just the experimental group here in the United States, Alliance University, uh, Diego Garcia Rodriguez got his PhD off of this study. And they, they basically did 24 training sessions, having recruited really, really bad insomniacs. And it worked beautifully. Just like the Australian Institute for Sports, their athletes wearing actograph technology to measure the sleep quality and having subjective sleep reports, 24 training sessions ended up fixing their insomnia. Well, let so, me give you, I'm, I'm going to interrupt and suggest I love neurofeedback. That's where I came from. And that's how I approach everything for a long time. But when I have somebody who is sleeping within 20 feet or less of a Wi-Fi router, and by the way, the research on increased calcium across the cell membrane is from a researcher named Martin Paul out of, uh, it was out in Washington or Washington State. So that research is available. But in the practical clinical sense, of what we often see, that if I have somebody walk in the door who is a 40-year-old, this happened quite recently, 40-year-old who has terrible sleep, so he's sleeping three and a half to four and a half hours of sleep a night, typically three and a half to four, he is getting a lot of anxiety, he is associating anxiety with that, but really didn't have previously a clinical history of anxiety. So there's a, there's a strong suspicion that the anxiety may be related to the sleep. And he wants to do neurofeedback for sleep, which Jay, you just gave an elegant example of why we could do that. So my question is, these days, where is your router? Where are your cell phones? How close are you to all this exposure? By the way, routers produce far higher exposure than even cell phones. So Turns out he had several devices that were in his room that let, were left on at night, and his router was in the next room, but if there was no wall, it would have been about 12 feet away, 12 to 15 feet away. 
in suggesting to him that he turn all this off because he was relatively desperate and he decided he would do that. I said, let's try that before we do neurofeedback, just to see what the impact is. One week later, he is sleeping six to six and a half hours of sleep a night. Now, that's not perfect. And we still have neuro, some room to go with neurofeedback. Is that a significant clinical observation? This is not unique to him. I have yes. multiple people now that I am observing and uh, Dr. Robert Turner, Rusty Turner, the neurologist is reporting the same experience with his clinical population that if he can get people to reduce this nighttime exposure of constant Wi-Fi, because it's constant, maybe this is contributing to why we're seeing so much spindling beta, because we've seen a lot. Can you just do, should you just do neurofeedback or should you go, well, why the heck did it get to this level in the first place? What you have is case observations and you've got a series of them. So it's a case series, but a case series is just the beginning of science. There's no you know, randomization into control group versus experimental group. If your observations are put down and put into a case series report, at that point, you may be able to get some funding to do some randomization into treatment approach. And at that point, you'd have some actual science. What you have is essentially anecdotal support, which is, it's, you know, it's, it's some support, but it's not really considered, you know, super science level. Actually was accepted at the California Energy Commission as an expert on EMF uh, from power lines. And believe me, the uh, power you know, PG&E and uh, Pacific Corp and uh, Edison Electric tried to have me thrown out as an ex as being an expert with all their grilling and everything. The Energy Commission accepted my uh, status as as an expert. Um, there was no standard at the time for EMF exposure. I had actually walked through uh, towns with EMF meters measuring under power lines and above buried power lines and so forth. And it's an all-male uh, regulatory panel. They're all sitting up on a high dais and, you know, kind of looking down on you as you're testifying. And uh, one of the commissioners said, well, there is no standard. Could you recommend a standard? I said, well, if you hold the dose meter at testicular height above a buried power line, uh, it, it's an acceptable at three milligauss. And you could see every single male on the panel kind of squinch up a little bit, you know, like don't toast the noogies, you know. So uh, they, they, they actually accepted the three feet above the street level, three milligauss as a standard. Uh, and again, <laughs> I kind of have some idea that they would probably have a little subjective, you know, wince at the, at the uh, proposed standard, but Skin in the game. A skin in the game. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the uh, uh, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. You know, they, they didn't. They wanted to move forward uh, productively in their future potentially. So yeah, they they accepted that as a standard. They actually had to bury the power line for a, a power plant that was being uh, recommended, a, a cogeneration power plant for the town I was living in. It cost them $10 million to bury the power line through the town. But instead of having 150 milligauss when you're walking near the power line, 
we had three milligauss when you're walking over the buried power line. So, uh, and, and there's already been some evidence uh, from Swedish studies uh, that anything above three milligauss can increase uh, childhood leukemia cancer. Now, the power companies tried to refute that. They did their own study, a very large study. Their study actually uh, showed a positive correlation with astrocytoma with high-intensity you know, high uh, EMF with power line workers and so forth. So their, their study uh, argued that it, it, it wasn't uh, uh, able to generate um, childhood leukemia although uh, they didn't uh, bring out the, the astrocytoma aspect of their study, it was right there in their data set. Uh, I, I'm sure that there's uh, EMF-related impacts from uh, Wi-Fi. I, I'm just not that familiar with the research on it. Again, I'm, I'm old and retired, and I'm uh, not super current on the literature, but I was involved in the fight back when it was still an active fight at the Energy Commission. Well, the fortunate thing is that many people who are recognizing they have a sleep problem, this kind of gets into some of, Skip, what you were talking about is what does it go beyond? Um, if you want to wait for companies or even individual uh, providers to try to do re extensive research in how Wi-Fi interferes with sleep cycles, there may be some delay in doing that. Oh, yeah. But if you have heard, I mean, there's a lot of information out there. There's actually a lot of published research that people don't go and read. There are several thousand studies that show biological impact of Wi-Fi. So this is not a non-research study, non-research field. It's just that how many of them were actually focused on specifically sleep. Yeah. And so Wi-Fi actually magnetic fields, there's something called dirty electricity, which is the wiring of your elect uh, the wiring of your house has other fields that are transient fields that come across that that are also biologically impactful. All of these things can be measured. So there are people, there are meters out there that can help you measure them. There are people out there who will come in and check to see what you have. But when you see consistently in my realm, in talking to multiple other providers and other uh, people who have experienced this, even clients independently who've reported, they put Wi-Fi in newer updated Wi-Fi, and all of a sudden, everybody in their family was having issues. And then they took it out and they were doing better. It's not hard to say, gee, if we don't know that it is good, I mean, none of us grew up you know, if, if you're older, if you're younger, you did grow up with this. But if you're older, our, we don't have a biology that says, I am used to having this constant pulse field. And no one has proven it's safe. And so is it reasonable to say, you know, if I was in a forest, I mean, lots of people realize when they go, but, you know, if they go camping, they may experience something different. So anything that you can do to make your environment more pristine whether that's reduced mold, which we haven't even talked about, but you, you guys have had some discussions about that. You know, air quality in the room is actually important. There's all these particulates that can be in the room that affect your sleep. But the other things that are something you can do something easily about is light and Wi-Fi. You can turn those things off. You can turn Wi-Fi off. You can wear... I would say not a blue blocker, but there's something called a blue-green blocker, which actually looks like red lenses. And when you wear those, it's 
clinically, again, this is observationally, far more impactful. I've tried it on 10 or 15 people and I'm getting very similar reports of this has a stronger effect. Basically, it makes everything you look like, it makes the room look like it's lit by candlelight, by the way, when you wear red glasses. And that's what our eyes are supposed to see. So if you use screens and you think I've solved my problem because I now have a screen device that lowers the intensity of my screen, it might not really do the trick when you realize every other light in your whole house is producing blue light, just even what you're reading with, what's lighting up the room, rather than try to get something to regulate all those. If you wear these glasses, you know, a half hour after sundown, I could just call them people. A lot of people wear sunglasses during the day. Anybody wear sunglasses during the day? Some people do that. These are my night glasses. So if we're used to wearing sunglasses, why not have night glasses? Because we need that. And most importantly, it's easy enough for somebody in a 30 to 60 day trial, I would say 60 days because it takes, it takes the body time to adapt. This is not a, I put these things on, I turn off my Wi-Fi, I slept great. I slept better tomorrow. I have had a few people who did that. It often can take time for these things to have an effect. So a good test would be 60 days. Everybody, if you don't know, you can turn off your router, you can unplug it. That's one way to turn off your router, unplug it. And if the power ever flickered, it will turn off and on. So some people are worried, what if I turn my Wi-Fi off at night? Gee, will it come back on? But those things are designed to come right back on. So I'm just encouraging people to say, all right, if I'm going to be proactive about things that I can do, two of the things that I can easily do is to control light. Although you may go, I don't want to wear those glasses at night, but that's a choice. It is really quite impactful. It's kind of amazing when you talk to people who are doing that, including me. I was very surprised how tired I got early. I'm like, what's wrong with me? Oh, it's these glasses. That doesn't mean everybody will have that effect. And then the Wi-Fi. And frankly, if I, if I could have you also measure magnetic fields and dirt electricity, but I'm overwhelming people. So I try not to tell them all that all at once. But there are meters uh, there's something called a tri-field meter. There's a meter called the coronet meter. Those are things that you can get. Now, you may still have to figure out what they mean, but they're at least a starting point. To Because if you don't measure it, you won't know. It's kind of impressive when you show people how much exposure they're getting. It makes you a little more aware of just what's happening. And you, it also says, is it even an issue? Because you don't, you can't say it's an issue if you don't measure it. So I, I would just encourage that these two factors along with others, air quality being, I just heard a whole talk on air quality and mental health, both internal and external, I mean, in the house air quality and external. These are the environmental things you can do something about because you can get a decent air filter, you can get light, you can get these things over, over to wear on your eyes and you can turn off, at least turn off your Wi-Fi. Yeah, you're short of the industry coming out and saying, hey, yeah, sorry, this stuff's not really good for you at all. Um, you know, Philip Morris, right. Coming out and saying, Hey, have a, you know, have a cigarette, but they're not very good. For you. Like that's, that, I don't think anybody here really thinks that's going to happen. It's, it's against, you know, corporation self-interest and all that good stuff. But here we are talking about things that could contribute to poor sleep with the, the premise that, Hey, sleep is super in, important for us. Uh, you know, right. Sleep, exercise, diet. And here's something that could be 
adding to the difficulty, right? So as we do neurofeedback or whatever we're doing, whatever the intervention is, there just might be other things that are that are working against us. And something I've noticed or or I guess gotten from you in in working together a little bit is, hey, we're doing this intervention, but if we have all these other things that are continuing to press against your your body's ability to respond and react. Like we're kind of doing a one step forward, two steps back thing, right? I'm just trying to, again, make a comment that at, at, as we work, it's like, well, what else is going on in this person's environment that could either be making them you know, more predisposed to receiving benefits or working against them getting benefits? And that's the, that, that was the idea about, hey, let's get Mike on and talk about EMFs. So that was the comment. And here's the question. All right, now we're talking about Wi-Fi and let's turn that stuff off at night and maybe limit our exposure to it. And we got 5G, you know, being talked about as the next best thing, which is 5G is one click above 4G. It's incremental in its availability, exposure, whatever you want to call it. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts about 5G other than it's maybe not that great for us? So 4G, I've been talking about 4G and the impact of 4G. Okay. 5G will be more, like you said, incrementally more, but more. So if you can start to reduce your exposure, you're reducing your exposure as much as you can. It's a step-by-step process. It's not good for us. So the really question is, you can say, okay, well, if it's not bad for us, I mean, if I don't have proof that it's not bad for us, I will do it. Well, you can also eat sugar all day long and you can feel fine. I mean, but eventually it does catch up with you. Some, at least, although some people live to hundred and eat sugar all the time. So but it's an odds game. I'm an odds guy. Actually, interestingly enough, I heard another talk about blood sugar and and waking early. There's a there can be a significant role in blood sugar and how what you're eating and when you're eating and the combination of either fats or and sugar and things like that. So there are so many variables, and hopefully people are paying attention to their diet. As you've already mentioned, diet is critical and uh, figuring that out. I'm, I'm bringing up the thing that nobody's talking about at all, which for the most part is the blue light. Although you, everybody knows, okay, I can get blue blockers, but people wear them for a week and two weeks and they go, well, this hasn't helped my sleep. So I won't wear them anymore. I actually was one of those people. Uh, then, I, then I heard, you know, uh, the talk on the neurobiology of sleep. And it's like, okay, this is not a maybe is blue light affecting you. It is. It's just a matter of how long, how long might that take for it to have some impact? Maybe you'll be a lucky one and you won't notice any impact, but you know, we tend to take years to get sick. Why not do things that we know biologically are safer? Eating sugar. I mean, if look, if you're eating sugar, all a lot of sugar all day long, do your Wi-Fi and do your blue light because what the hell's the difference? You, you do it. You, you know, you can get three. You might as well go for three things that might affect you rather than one. These are basic things to do. Um, nothing more. That's all I'm suggesting is more importantly, the clinical impact, which as Jay rightfully says, is not published. So I haven't published this data. I am trying to collect some data. I'm not basing it upon my own clinical experience. I've talked to enough and done enough other research and interactions with many others, there are a population of people that are very sensitive and they notice. And then there's the rest of us who don't notice, but then one day we come down with some kind of weird disease out of the blue. And uh, there are even, you know, 
it's not out of the blue. I mean, uh, there are people who, I mean, there's research that, that states that Wi-Fi produces increased oxidative stress. Do we want increased oxidative stress? If you don't know what that is, you don't want that. I have an anecdotal information comment question, I guess. I recently moved, well, not recently, but about a year and a half, two years ago, I moved to a new home closer to work. One of the questions I had to myself uh, into Google about moving there was there was a string of power lines in the back of the house. I have since given a picture of this after we had a long talk about EMFs, but Anyway, move to the new house. I am the biggest skeptic, and you always hear that, you know what the, the next sentence that follows is, biggest skeptic. I looked it up before we bought the house, uh, moved in, got struck by some kind of autoimmune thing that they're calling rheumatoid arthritis, and I'm, I'm doubting that. There's no there's no blood test confirming anything like that for me, and uh, but but nonetheless got got struck down and in some ways crippled physically. I mean, I'm fine now. I can't help but but connect those two factors, and, and you know whatever coincidental, and you know just because it's uh, correlational doesn't mean it's causal. Blah blah blah. But I'm also the biggest techie that anybody wants to meet. Uh, I'm a musician, and everything's electronic. I've got more laptops than I have hookups, but Everything's electronic, there's Wi-Fi. So, and I happen to be the reason people are viewing uh, driving in a car seat is because uh, we're going camping. And I can tell you that, you know, yeah, there's a lot less stress when you're camping, but I, I sleep like a baby. I, I, could, I get up at 5 a.m. every day like clockwork. When I'm camping, I could sleep till 8 or 9 in the morning. You know, is it correlational, causal, anecdotal, just kind of a one-shot story, maybe, but If you dig deeper into the research on power lines, there's, as Jay kind of already alluded to, there are large economic factors that are working to reduce the exposure of these research things. So basically that means research papers get buried. That's that's the bottom line. Not find them. And I can tell you again anecdotally that the neighbor on my left, testicular cancer, the neighbor on the right, breast cancer. They've been yeah. there for 30, 40 years. There are many clusters of illness that can be near uh, industrial plants, that can be in various areas. So do, do those clusters of illness get, do, do we get good research on that? And do we get good news on that we do not so and there are research papers on this but i'm not i have a link if you want to several thousand papers so if you want to try to comb through those i have them with the i have the link uh, i think it's called the bioinitiative report but the other comment would be that as people are trying to do this i'm going to use one anecdotal story that was impressive to me even though it's anecdotal i got new glasses the guy who fit my glasses he asked me about frames and what frames do I want. I'm like, I don't want frames with metal in the frames because that can initiate. If, if you're getting exposed all the time to electromagnetic fields and you have metal in your frames, it actually increases your exposure a little bit. So I just go for polyester frames. He's like, wow, I, got, I just moved to a new house. He says this. He's about 45, very healthy looking guy. And he says, my energy level in the morning and during the day has been greatly decreased. And there's this tower off in the distance that has a microwave. 
do you think that could have anything to do with it? Because since I, since this happened, I mean, I just, I never was tired. Now I'm tired all the time and it's every day. So I told him about this. I told him there's a guy in your neighborhood, actually who lives near him, who does measuring for this. Why don't you have some measure and see? I had to fix my glasses again, went back to him. He goes, I have to tell you, your guy came over. He found these super high levels right where my pillow was. He says, it turned out we could block with aluminum foil above the window. Like there was a certain frame where they put aluminum foil up. Anyway, he tells me this story. He says, I don't know if it's placebo, but ever since we blocked that, I'm not tired anymore. I'm fine. I'm alert. I'm not back to getting tired during the day. He says, clearly, this was a big issue for me. And I had no Reminds me of uh, what about salt? Uh, sure. Special. Makes me think of aluminum foil. But hey, uh, real quick too, um, Skip, you you came to, to visit me once, and you brought uh, some equipment with to try to neutralize these things. Can you guys talk about what what else besides unplugging can be done? Laura is referring to the kind of mini Faraday cage that you can fit over a Wi-Fi or, or, or a router. If you go out and you look for Wi-Fi guard. I think is the term router guard. I think it's actually, I think it's router guard. There are a variety of companies that make, essentially you put some kind of metal or impregnated metal fabric that blocks Wi-Fi. If you want to block Wi-Fi, but still have a little bit left, so you still have a connection, you have to kind of reduce it significantly. But believe it or not, you can often reduce it 90% and still have really good signals, but then reduce at least your daily exposure all the time. You can even go to Amazon. You can find it on Google. There are some companies that do more Wi-Fi stuff that are a little more specialized in that and have options. That there are many people who ask me all the time, I found this device online that neutralizes all the Wi-Fi and makes it safe for you. Is that fine? Because you know now I'm doing something for myself. I would like to see more evidence that those devices work. I definitely hear people who say that they feel like it makes them feel better. And that might be true. My comment to people in general is if you have a rock in your shoe and you say, you know, here is some great cotton that we can put around this rock. So your foot will feel better. That is a very reasonable strategy, but taking the darn rock out first would be a better strategy. Then you can put the cottons back in. I don't think it hurts to do those things, but I think that when you measure it with a device, so I have a very expensive device that measures microwave energy, for example, none of those devices I have ever seen change the amount of energy that is being output two feet from the device. Now, except for the router guards, those actually block and you see a greatly diminished signal. There are, there's actually clothing that you can buy and hats and other things that, I mean, the most vulnerable areas, by the way, people who are sensitive is head and actually gut. So if you're into this, you can look at all these things. But I think to start out with, you just focus on at night. You want better sleep. Why do you want better sleep? The quality of your sleep affects the quality of your vigilance, as Jay described, which is both your alertness your inability to engage on a sustained basis during the day. And Jay, were you saying that there are greater numbers of people who are having problems maintaining vigilance over the, than used to be? 
that's what Rusty and I have observed. That we don't have a solid study on it, but uh, both of us are having trouble finding individual cases where people maintain vigilance well for an entire 10 minutes. And it used to be pretty routine. You know, a, a normal person is generally able to stay awake and oriented for a full 10 minutes with the eyes closed. Um, the second five minutes, they're allowed a little bit of light driftiness into uh, what are called B1 or B2 stages of vigilance, but they're, they're basically expected to stay awake during the 10 minutes. And we're having difficulty finding people that stay awake for, for the full, full 10 minutes. And it's not unusual to find people that actually hit stage two in the first five minutes, which if you're in a sleep lab, I, I used to actually have a three bed sleep lab. Um, we, we basically see them fall asleep in the first five minutes, which would in a sleep lab be a failure of an MSLT screening, multiple sleep latency test, the afternoon nap that they do in a sleep lab to see whether you're going to get an all night sleep study paid for. Uh, they give you five attempts at a nap. If you fall asleep faster than five minutes, you've got a nocturnal sleep problem. So we're, we're finding people falling all the way to stage two in the first five minutes really quite commonly now. And again, th that, that's a change from our historic um, experience. So we're having this common ob observation. So Skip and Laura, do you guys see a higher percentage of people taking what Jay said? Are you seeing a higher number of people who are having sleep symptoms like this? Less alertness, less awake. Granted, uh, clinical population is who I see, right? I'm not, nobody comes to my office if everything's uh, peachy keen, right? Since I've become more focused on the effects of sleep, that's increased my questioning about sleep. So am I finding what I'm looking for? Yeah, but does that mean I wasn't looking for it before and wasn't asking? Mm. To answer your question more directly, I think probably like two people have said they sleep great since I've started asking these questions in the last year and a half. Like nobody comes to my office that sleeps real well. And if they do, you know, how involved is Sarah Quill, you know, in, in, in their perception of good sleep? And I'll say one more comment and then leave it to Laura. But I've also had folks say, yeah, I sleep fine. And then, you know, you do your second, third round of questioning and then like, it ain't so fine. It, it's fine is what they're used to. And that's four to six hours. And they're used to being drowsy and, and not feeling well. It's been diagnosed as depression for 20 years kind of thing. So yeah, sleep's involved or, or, or lack of. And, and that poses in the lore you comment, maybe you can work this in. How many people are being dealt with for mental health issues? that are potentially underlying sleep issues. You want to answer everybody, right? How do you, how do you distinguish the two? How do you, you know, depression, anxiety, you know, right there, about sleep issues, and, and it just kind of loops back on itself, right? You're miserable, you can't sleep, you're worried about this or that, you can't sleep, now you can't do your work. I mean, it's just, you know, how, how do you uh, choose what, you know, what happened first, chicken or the egg? But absolutely, yeah. And for me, if somebody wakes, says they wake up at two or three in the morning with anxiety, is that a sleep issue and not an anxiety issue? Or is there excessive stimulation or poor air quality or poor blood sugar? Or, I mean, are there environmental or metabolic components that, again, we call them anxiety? We call them depression. Are they sleep? Which, again, back to this bigger 
issue of what I think you do real well, Mike. And it's like, okay, here, we're calling it this and we can treat it certainly with neurofeedback, but what, what else is contributing to this thing that we're calling, you know, X anxiety or depression or whatever. And, and does it involve sleep? And if it involves sleep, holy cow, here's another Pandora's box we can open up that might be contributing to that, right? I think Laura was referring to the bioreg. And so maybe that's a different show, uh, right? Get you, get you back <laughs> on to talk about frequency treatments, right? PEMF treatment approaches. Maybe that's a different show, huh? You know, there, there are a variety of ways to deal with this, but since you mentioned this, I'm just going to leave with one more anecdotal, which is not a published research item. Woman came with severe, 38 years old, four kids, homeschooling, reporting, unable to work with her kids anymore, unable to take care of her kids. Her mom had to come stay for the last several months. She was so overwhelmed by anxiety and sleep issues. So she's waking multiple times a night and she had tinnitus. So tinnitus or tinnitus is ringing in the ears. It had come on for about five or six months. It was unrelenting. She'd been to a lot of places. It was creating great anxiety and great sleep disruption. So is that a sleep issue? Is that whatever? I'm into this stuff now and I'm like, well, you're desperate. Why don't you try this? How far is the router from your from where you sleep, the husband's a techie at least. So he's like, it's 13 feet away <laughs> on the other side of the wall. He was willing to turn, they were willing to turn everything off. And we had this device other than neurofeedback that is a, what is, would be called a body. I'm going to call it a body biofeedback machine, but it's in the realm of something called bioresonance, but it's body biofeedback using electrical signaling from the body. And so we did several of those sessions and they turned all the stuff off. She noticed improvement, but here the bottom line is two weeks, six sessions into the training, she calls me. She's supposed to come for another session. She's like, should I do another session? She was 95% better with anxiety. She was 95% better with her tinnitus, tinnitus, that she wanted to kill herself. I mean, it was bad. If she didn't have her kids, it would have been bad news. And her sleep had normalized. Now, I'd like to say that my biofeedback for the body machine did help to do that, and it helped, but there is no way. I've worked with too many tinnitus cases. I think the point is the Wi-Fi, she is very, very clear, exacerbated her problem. She must have been highly sensitive to it, but how many people are, we don't know. We just don't. How sensitive, we don't know. We just know by reducing it dramatically, her life changed, and she was virtually on the way to try to get hospitalized before she got here. I don't know how she even found us. How many people are out there, the guy at the eyeglass store who is starting to have health issues? He was a healthy guy. All of a sudden, things happen. There's lots of factors. Here's a couple more to hopefully not worry about, to just do something simple about. For those who want to track sleep issues in a practice, there's something called the Pittsburgh Sleep Inventory, which is a free download. It's a very short self-report, and it does a very nice job tapping into all of the uh, issues respecting it, regarding sleep. Uh, it's used routinely in sleep labs. It's, it's well-respected as a, as a way to objectively track sleep issues across time. And Jay, if I collected PP, uh, the Pittsburgh uh, uh, report... Sleep. Inventory, inventory uh, on 15 cases. Can I use that as a measure of publishing? 
In fact, as a measure of uh, sleep quality, uh, the Pittsburgh sleep inventory is well accepted. Uh, you still have to design the rest of your study, but as a, a way to objectify sleep reports, as opposed to I'm sleeping well or not, is kind of a binary, very little gradation between yes and no. Um, this gives you, you know, finer measurements. You know, it's, if you're complaining of depression, you get a depression inventory that gives you a scale as opposed to yes or no gives you a you know, finer gradation of re resolution in your measurement. And the Pittsburgh sleep inventory is brief, but it's very sensitive and uh, very well accepted within uh, sleep labs and people measuring sleep issues. So yeah, it, it's free and it's uh, uh, downloadable online. Uh, it's well accepted. Mike, thanks for coming back on the show, man. What a show. We got to bring you back more often or start another podcast. You're, you're awesome. You got great content. I just stir up trouble. Actually, I tell clients that when I bring up the thing about Wi-Fi, I'm going to bring up something that's going to make you hate me because uh, you don't want to hear this because nobody wants to give up their Wi-Fi. Nobody wants to give up their screens. We are used to this. Why should we do this? Why should we change this? But hopefully... What's the best way for uh, our listeners to uh, learn more about you? Uh, what's your website? Uh, Center for Brain. Three words, centerforbrain.com. You know, a lot of what I'm doing now, I'm getting calls from all over, is just kind of walking people sometimes through the process of thinking about it. Even if they're a distance, we do some consultations just to try to help people go, in my situation, what would make sense? Because we're only talking about a certain number of things here, and there are more things that could be discussed. But So sometimes people just need some guidance and navigation, and so we try to help when we can. We will have uh, your link in the podcast notes, so we'll make sure everybody gets that. And then a little note to everybody else out there. I mean, we're not here to give medical advice. We're just trying to, you know, point where the water is. You got to go drink and go talk to your therapist, doctor, and, and whatnot. How's that for a disclaimer, guys? Does that work? <laughs> yeah, I think we're all covered now. We'll, <laughs> we'll run that by the uh, the attorneys. <laughs> We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. The contact info for everyone will be located in the podcast notes. Do you have an idea for a topic? Please email Pete at NeuroNoodle.com or leave us a voicemail with, uh, that's on the link in the podcast notes below. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. And hey, if you really, really like us, you can always buy us a coffee on Patreon slash neuro noodle cue the music <laughs>